Coming up on the Keto Camp Podcast, we discuss everything about the gut with Megan Hall. ultimately what you really have to do is consider how a given artificial sweetener affects you personally. So for example, do you eat something or drink something that's artificially sweetened and you want more of something else that's hyper palatable and you keep eating and eating and eating? Or do you use something like, you know, one of those higher quality artificial sweeteners as a tool to help you satisfy a craving and then you're done and you don't end up consuming a lot of of extra calories and, and craving more. But I will say that given that my my personal bias is to just avoid them when possible because it usually leads people down I think a slippery slope of consuming healthier or lower carb or keto versions of the foods that got them into trouble in the first place and I'd much prefer people to choose whole nutrient-dense foods over something sweetened with an artificial sweetener. We have access to ancient healing strategies such as ketosis, fasting, and carnivore. And on the Keto Camp Podcast, we are determined to deliver the science to you. We bring in the thought leaders in this space to have extraordinary conversations so you could apply it and change your life. Your body was built to thrive. Your body is capable of healing as long as you identify the interference and remove it. I believe you are a masterpiece because you are a piece of the master. My name is Ben Azadi. I'm the best-selling author of Keto Flex, and I want to thank you for spending part of your day with me. Hey, Keto Camper, Ben Azadi here, host of the Keto Camp Podcast from benazadi.com. This is an episode that's going to discuss all things gut health related. It's been said that all disease begins in the leaky gut. What exactly is leaky gut? We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about how mental emotional stress negatively impacts your gut. Megan gives some really, really basic, amazing, practical tips you can do to slow down, chew your food more frequently, and get more bang for your buck from the quality nutrients you're eating on keto. We also discussed the role of fasting and how that could improve gut function, ketones, Anti-nutrients, we talk a lot about plant toxins. What about carnivore? Can that benefit the gut? We get into that conversation. And then we talk about artificial sweeteners and how they're not all created equal and we have to really keep our eye out on the worst offenders and maybe even the healthy ones could be an issue for some people. Then we get into the short chain fatty acid butyrate and it's gonna be fascinating for you to hear about the role of butyrate in gut function. And then of course, we get into coffee and how that could be impacting your gut. Can your Bulletproof coffee help you or hurt you? This is gonna be a controversial topic, but we get into it, and one of the worst things you can do before bed is eat, and Megan will tell you exactly why that's going to be counterproductive for not just your health, but also your gut function. I can't wait to bring her on the show shortly, but before I do, I do wanna take a minute here to get to the Apple Podcast rating and review of the day. This is a five-star review from IB Mom titled Good Variety Keto. Ben has great guests and gives a lot of varied information on keto plans, intermittent fasting, and is passionate about sharing and helping folks to achieve health. I'm looking forward to learning more throughout 2021. 
Mom, thank you so much, IB Mom. That is an amazing review. I'm so glad you're enjoying the varied topics. We talk about keto, we talk about fasting, we talk about carnivore, and we today's episode, we talk about gut function. We're committed to deliver you the science in bite-sized nuggets so you could apply it and change your life for the better. So I appreciate you taking the time to leave that rating and review. It really does help the show grow and make a big difference. So if you haven't left the show a podcast review on Apple Podcasts, please do so today as it will help tremendously. And hey, maybe I'll be reading your review on the next episode. Megan Hall is the scientific director at Nourish Balance Thrive. I was recently interviewed on the Nourish Balance Thrive podcast with the awesome Christopher Kelly. That's how I got connected with Megan. Megan has been on a mission to educate the world on gut performance and health overall. She has an amazing story, which she's going to share about approaching health the allopathic way and finding out that this is not her true purpose. And her true purpose is actually a holistic approach, a multifactorial approach. She's doing some incredible work out there, and I'm excited to have her on the show. So here is Megan Hall. Megan Hall, welcome to the Keto Camp Podcast. Thank you, Ben. It's, it's great to be here with you today. I was on your colleague's podcast a couple of weeks ago, Nourish, Balance, Thrive with Christopher Kelly, and we had a great time. He actually recorded it outdoors. I love that he was outside. And now I'm excited to have you. You're actually the scientific director at Nourish, Balance, Thrive, and I consider you a digestive expert, and we're going to tie in ketosis and fasting and coffee and all things gut-related today. So thanks for being here today, and I want to start with your story. How did you get involved in the health space? Sure. Yeah, great question. So I was for a long time on the path to the conventional path to medical school. I went to UC Davis and I majored in exercise biology there. And now as I was nearing the end of my undergraduate education, I became more and more interested in what I I guess you would call like functional or integrative or holistic medicine. Although, um, you know, I I think now the the best medicine is, um, you know, the, the kind that works best for the patient and also has the best risk reward ratio for the patient. But anyway, um, I was becoming more interested in how things like lifestyle and nutrition play a role in chronic diseases and simultaneously becoming more aware of the fact that I would most likely be very frustrated with much of a conventional medical school education and would ultimately have to break out of the conventional mold and practice the medicine that I knew and believed to work best, um, at least for the majority of the issues that people today are experiencing. And uh, I had far more of a passion, I realized back then, for helping people implement impactful nutritional and lifestyle interventions that I had for, you know, pharmaceutical medication. So because I was kind of like on this fence and medical school was, a, you know, it's a big commitment if you're not truly committed, I decided to take some time and do a master's degree in nutritional biology. And I figured that if I didn't go to med school, it, or if I did, it would be helpful uh, since doctors don't get much, if any, of a nutrition education. And if I didn't, it could still be helpful with whatever I, I chose to pursue instead of that. And quite frankly, the decision to pursue that degree was one of the best decisions of my life. And looking back, it's, it's kind of funny how it was a, one of the best decisions, but also rather last minute. So, uh, you know, I, I love the lab. I love the research. My peers and my colleagues are were and still are wonderful. And um, 
I have many fond memories of those years. And I ultimately decided to apply to med school. But along the way, I started working at Nourish Balance Drive, where I am now. Um, you can probably guess what happened. After interviewing at a couple of schools, I realized that I loved the work that I was doing with clients at MBT. And I felt like I could actually cultivate these relationships and get to know people. And I felt like through doing so, I could most likely help them far better than I could in a rushed 15 minute appointment as you know a, a conventional doctor could, where it's almost expected that the patient leaves with some kind of, of prescription. So long story short, that brings us to today where I, I still work with amazing people at Nourish Balance Thrive and basically help them achieve their version of optimal health and performance. And I also, it's kind of fun, I get to continue my own learning by keeping abreast of the the recent scientific literature and applying it to clients where relevant. And what we do first and foremost encompasses a lot of diet and lifestyle interventions, which are the inputs that our genes are basically expecting in order to thrive. So things like, um, you know, a whole foods, nutrient dense diet, sleep, stress management, social connection, movement. And then sometimes we get into more advanced testing and targeted short-term supplementation when needed to get to the root cause of certain issues, which could be rooted in the gut, uh, you know, the endocrine system at the cellular mitochondrial level. And more and more, we're we're realizing how psychology also plays into our physiology and can't really be separated. So, you know, the, the gut and the endocrine system are very much integrated. And one of the most telling signs that uh, f- from that, for example, is when you do something, you know, an intervention at the level of the gut, and then something like mood improves or sleep improves or hormones start coming back into range. So that's what I, I do today. I love it. What an awesome story. You're not alone. A lot of people who go the conventional route have put so much time and money into it that they don't actually see the opposite side of things and go that direction. So kudos to you for actually doing that and and wanting to make a a bigger difference out there because we know that the traditional medical system, there's a lot of holes in it. It's not really getting to the root cause. It's not multifactorial. The time that is spent with patients is not enough time. The education on nutrition is not enough education. So that's why it's important. And I thought it was really amazing that you broke away from that, kind of saw what you were doing with uh, NBT, and you said, actually, this is, this is more impactful than what you were doing. So that's super cool. Speaking of, do you work one-on-one with people? Is that what you do? Mm-hmm. I do. Okay. Uh, and how many people would you say, since you've been at NBT, have you worked with on a one-on-one capacity? Do you have an idea of the number? I, I, I couldn't even is it hundreds or I, I would I would say it's on the level of hundreds. Yeah, hundreds. Are there any cases that come to mind? And you don't have to mention names or get too specific, but you mentioned the fundamentals, which I love. When I meet with somebody, let's talk about the fundamentals. Are you eating whole foods? Let's start with that. Are you getting quality sleep? Are you mastering your stress levels? How are your thoughts? Uh, let's say they're doing all that, but maybe there's a case where that somebody has been doing that, they're meeting with you, maybe you had this happen in the past, but they're not getting better, or they're getting better very, very slowly. Were there other hidden things that might have been contributing to their cells not being able to function if there were was, that com- whatever comes to mind, what were some of those hidden causes that were going on? Sure. Yeah. So actually, you know, I don't want to put people into buckets, but we have kind of if I could, two almost buckets of people that come to MBT. One of those buckets is people who are already doing all of the big rock diet lifestyle interventions. The other bucket is people who, who aren't. And so for the, for the people who already are, um, you know, oftentimes when, when we look at, you know, 
they're they're already eating a whole foods nutrient dense diet. Maybe that has more or less animals, more or less plants. That's going to be personalized. You know, their stress is on point. Their sleep is on point. There could be something actually going on overtly at the level of the gut. So that could be intestinal permeability. That could be um, dysbiosis, which is the imbalance of good and potentially pathogenic microbes in the gut. So those things could be causing them to still not, not get well. And so that's where something, you know, potentially like a stool test comes in, some targeted supplementation, and then hopefully we fix the problem. And then the ultimate goal is to have diet and lifestyle eventually take over. Yeah, well said. So for a stool test, is there a go-to lab that you like to use? So we, we, we've used them all, to be honest. And the one we're using most often these days is the Genova GIFX three-day stool panel, the, the comprehensive one. I will say there, there's... For stool tests, there, there isn't a perfect one. We're still just looking at this, this tiny little piece of what's a really a, a big black box. But for, for some people, the stool testing can help us be a little bit more targeted in our approach. If somebody, for example, has H. pylori and, and some of the virulence factors or, or they have you know, an overt pathogen or some very severe dysbiosis, that's where the, the stool testing can come in. Yeah, I like I like that that test. I also like Vibrant Wellness Labs. They make a good one as well, like the Weed Zoomer, Gut Zoomer, etc. Okay, yeah, that's really important. The gut. We know that the majority of the population, especially in the U.S., have some form of intestinal permeability, aka leaky gut. What would you estimate if you had to put a number on it? The um, percentage of Americans that have leaky gut. I mean, I I would definitely say the vast majority. And, and leaky gut, you have to remember, can manifest as different symptoms. But based off of the fact that we know that the vast majority of Americans, at least, are, are very metabolically unhealthy, I think we can also say that the, you know, the foods they're eating, what, what they're doing from a lifestyle perspective, are also not conducive to cultivating a really healthy gut barrier. So you know, number-wise, I, I don't know, but I would probably guess the vast majority. Yeah, the vast majority, I would guess. I would say over 80% probably. And there's different degrees of leaky gut, which, as you said, it's our food supply, it's pesticides, herbicides, toxicity. It's a whole host of, of reasons why, which creates that that opening of the, the tight junctions, which then the pro, of these proteins go undigested and it could lead to issues. So let's talk about the gut because you're an expert on the gut. I've been studying for this episode and I've been blown away by your research and uh, what you've been contributing to the world, especially in, the, in terms of digestive health. Let's start with how stress, mental, emotional stress specifically impacts not just our digestive health, but also our overall health. Yeah, absolutely. So this, this is a huge, huge one and super important topic. I'll start by saying that I have had my fair share of gut issues in the past and I've worked through them. But the one thing that without fail still gets me is, is stress. Um, so it's, it's very impactful. And there are different ways that stress can impact the gut. Uh, that that's both physical and emotional stress. The elevation of stress hormones, so cortisol, epinephrine, um, norepinephrine, things like that, can cause direct inflammation, which can increase intestinal permeability and lead to further gut-derived inflammation. So it's kind of this vicious cycle. And the stress hormones can potentially even lead to food intolerance if, if gut permeability is, is involved. And stress can also directly impact digestion and nutrient absorption. I'm sure listeners can think of a time where maybe they were eating in a really stressed out state and then they felt like their food just kind of sat in their gut and it wasn't really properly digested. 
And if you if you think about it, we have our, our sympathetic nervous system, which is going to be favored in times of, of stress. I'm sure people have heard of it referred to as the, the fight or flight branch of the nervous system. And then we have this parasympathetic branch, which is inherently our rest and digest side of the nervous system. And our bodies weren't created to digest food um, simultane- when simultaneously in a time of stress. Of course, there are other ways, some indirect ways that emotional stress can impact our gut health. So for example, you know, maybe we make some poor food choices when we're stressed out, and that's not going to be particularly conducive for either the microbes in our gut or for the, the health of the intestinal barrier. And stress can also increase motility and fluid reabsorption in the gut, which is why it's not uncommon to get some looser stools or diarrhea when you're stressed out. There's also some studies suggesting that chronic stress can directly impact the balance of microbes in the gut, kind of favor more of the pathogenic microbes versus more of the commensal beneficial microbes. And I think it's also important to note there's a bi-directional relationship here. So stress can certainly have an impact on our guts, but the state of our gut can also impact how we respond to and perceive stress through the, the gut bugs or the gut microbiota communicating with the brain through the vagus nerve, which is the, the long nerve that connects the, the, the gut to the brain. Um, and also through different neurotransmitter release in the gut. We typically think of neurotransmitters as brain compounds, but we have a lot of neurotransmitters, serotonin, epinephrine, dopamine, norepinephrine that are actually derived by the gut as well. So um, if people listening to this are struggling with stress impacting their gut health, I think there's a handful of things that I would recommend. The, The first would be taking just a few deep breaths before eating. It doesn't have to be this big, long meditation session. If, if you have time for that, kudos to you. That, that, that's awesome. But you can just take a few deep breaths. Through the nose, right? Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, Dr. Simon Marshall, who works with us at MBT, he's our performance psychologist. He's taught us the power of something called the physiological sigh, which is where you basically take two inhales through the nose, and then it fo- it's followed by an extended exhale through the mouth. And it's actually quite effective for kind of bringing your body back into this, this parasympathetic state. Wow, that's a great tip. So how many times do you recommend we do that? I would say, I mean, it's, it's very quick. Um, so I would say, you know, two, three, four, five times. Okay, um, at, two to at five most. times. Yeah, you, you, re- you really don't need very much at all. Even I can personally feel a difference after just one of those physiological size. Um, so it's, it's pretty cool. The other thing that I would mention is slowing down and really chewing your food. I think in this day and age, we have a tendency to like inhale our foods. Totally. I've been there. Yeah. Me too. Yeah. And when you're stressed and maybe, you know, eating in a fast state, eating in a hurry, I think that tendency of of inhaling your food versus chewing is definitely there for a lot of people. And digestion actually starts in the mouth with salivary amylase with through the chewing process. So it's a very powerful yet simple intervention, although I, I know it's it can be harder to, to do than, than to say. And I, I would try to avoid eating while looking at the screen. So put your computer away, put your emails away, put your phone away. I would try to carve out some time to eat and avoid eating on the go. And I think that a lot of people, you know, tend to reach for sweet, salty, fatty foods that are high in calories when stressed out. And I think it's even more important to nourish your body with high quality nutrient dense foods during stressful times. And that basically just means choosing the foods that look like they came from from nature. 
The last thing would be at the start of your meal, you can also use some interventions like some natural digestive bitters incorporated into, into the start of your meal. Things like dandelion greens or mustard greens, arugula, ginger, um, mint, radish. So things that are kind of spicy and potent fermented foods like sauerkraut or kimchi, or even like a good quality digestive enzyme can also be helpful. Yeah, love those tips. I talk a lot about the bitters, the bitter for the liver. Uh, super important for keto because it helps you break down the fat, the bile does. So that's very important, whether you're doing keto or not. Those are great tips. A lot of people, and I'm guilty of it, I really speed through my meals and I have to catch myself and say, what am I doing? Like, I want to be grateful for how this meal got to me. Of course, I'm eating clean, but I'm not chewing it as frequently as I should. I might be, you know, watching something or on my phone at the same time. So just taking a second, doing that breath work, I think is great. Two inhales through the nose and then a longer exhale through the mouth. I'm going to use that to see how it helps me. Another problem that I used to have, but a lot of people currently have, is eating too close to bedtime. How does that interfere with our health? Yeah, so there's a couple of, of things. One, our bodies are through our circadian rhythms. They're expected to... Um, or they're expecting food to come in during the day when we're metabolically active and, and outside when the sun is out. Eating too close to bed from a sleep perspective can... So there's something called the thermic effect of eating. So eating inherently just increases our energy output and our, our body temperature. So, And we also know that a, a drop in body temperature is one of the biggest signals for our bodies to go to sleep. So if we're eating too close to bed, our body temperature is up. We're not able to cool our body temperature down to increase melatonin to therefore fall asleep and stay asleep. That's hugely problematic. Really, sleep should be a time of, of rest and repair. And if we're trying to digest simultaneously to that, there can be some issues there. And then also, interestingly, there's some newer research suggesting that our gut microbes actually have their own circadian rhythms. So that's a whole nother area of, of science that the circadian biology and each of our, you know, our, our organs have their different circadian rhythms, um, our liver, which is helping with, with, you know, digestion as well. Um, and then our gut bugs too. So I think it's important for us to remember that, yes, like we have to support our circadian rhythm by getting light at the right time, avoiding light at the right time, eating at the right time, but we're not only supporting our circadian rhythms, but the circadian rhythms of the bugs in our guts as well. Mm. So fascinating. It's such an important tip and it's very difficult for people to do because they find themselves snacking at night. It's really a habit for a lot of people to turn on the, the basketball game or turn on Netflix and grab something, even if it's healthy. What Megan is saying, and I agree, is that it takes a lot of resources to digest the meal and it takes blood flow away from the brain. You have this process getting started when we want to use those resources to repair and to recover and to get all those amazing benefits from sleep, the brain is detoxifying, the body is burning fat. But if you have, or if you're going to bed with a, with a meal in your stomach, then you're going to take those resources away from repair and recovery. You're going to use it for digestion. Not a good idea. So you're going to wake up probably in the morning hungrier, maybe a little bit groggy, just you don't feel well rested. So what would you say would be a good rule to follow in terms of how much time should you be in a fasted state before you go to bed? Mm, fasted or like like the, the time you, you take your last bite versus the time your head hits the pillow. The, that, that, the latter. Yeah. So I usually say, and this is, this is assuming that you're already kind of trying to front load your calories, which we know that more of an earlier time restricted eating 
template or, or schedule is oftentimes better for people. Um, maybe that doesn't work with your schedule and in your life and that's okay. Um, but typically having, you know, breakfast like a, a king, lunch like a prince, dinner like a pauper is going to be a little bit better for our circadian biologies. So assuming that, assuming you're not having like, you know, a huge, large, high calorie, high volume dinner, I think three hours is, is a good thing to shoot for. If you can do more than that, great. Some people find that they need a little bit more and that's fine. If you experience things like acid reflux, oftentimes you need more time to digest before your head hits the pillow and you're lying horizontally. But I think three plus hours is, is a good kind of um, thing to shoot for. Yeah, I agree. Acid reflux, a lot of people are dealing with that. What are maybe some practical tips for somebody to start doing to overcome acid reflux? Yeah, so that's that's a, a big one in and of itself. Definitely, you know, avoid, avoiding really large meals. Some people have certain triggers that can cause them acid reflux, so more more acidic foods, really really heavy foods. Avoiding, of course, eating too close to, to bed if if you find that the acid reflux is worse overnight. I would also look to see if, if there's anything, like if you're doing everything right from a food standpoint, you might also look at what's going on at the level of the gut to see if there's some kind of small intestinal dysbiosis or H. pylori or something causing some of those, those symptoms for you. And uh, the other thing, there, there's some controversy about, you know, whether high or low stomach acid can cause reflux. And I think that's going to be different for everyone. I usually, I actually, I, I never recommend PPIs, but... I would play with potentially trying a small amount of, of like BT and HCL to see if some extra stomach acid support helps with the reflux. If it gets worse, obviously that's a sign that it's not for you. But for some people, paradoxically, they find that those reflux-like symptoms they're experiencing may be more due to low stomach acid versus super high acid. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be different for the individual. So well said, Megan. Oh, another tip that I'll just add on there is a lot of people will eat a meal, a big meal, who have acid reflux, they'll get a flare up and then they'll lie down on their couch and, and that, that'll also make things worse. So going for maybe like a 10 minute walk after a meal could also help with uh, acid reflux flare ups. I want to get into the conversation on keto and fasting, which is primarily what I teach. So what role and from the research and the experience that you have, let's start with keto first. What role have you seen keto ketosis, beta hydroxybutyrate impact the gut? Yeah, so that's a great question. And it, it's a relatively new area of, of literature and research. So I, I will caveat my answer by, by saying that. And there was a recent paper, which uh, I, I can send you the link. You can, if you have show notes, you can put it in the show notes. But I was co-authored by um, some people I know, Dr. Tommy Wood, Lucy Mailing, and, and Jonathan Scholl. And it was talking about the significance of something called, or that the, they coined metabolic flexibility of the gut. So the idea behind this metabolic flexibility is that it makes sense from an evolutionary ancestral lens that our guts evolved to have this metabolic flexibility to adapt to different food resources available at a given time. So whether those are more plant-based or animal-based food sources, it doesn't really make sense that our guts would default to a state of disease or dysfunction if we didn't have, for example, fiber around all the time. So usually uh, short-chain fatty acid-producing bacteria in the gut metabolize these complex carbohydrates that are rich in fermentable fibers to produce short-chain fatty acids like butyrate, which I'm sure your listeners have heard about. And there's other short-chain fatty acids like acetate and, and propionate. Uh, but butyrate is special because it's the main fuel source for the gut epithelial cells. 
And butyrate doesn't just seem to work locally in the gut. We most likely haven't even touched the, the tip of the iceberg as far as what we know uh, butyrate can do, but it seems to also have some broader signaling properties and may impact things like uh, gene expression. For example, there is some recent evidence in animals that butyrate may help enhance sleep, specifically increase non-REM sleep and also facilitate a drop in, in body temperature, which like we said, we know is one of the signals for our body to go to sleep. And butyrate also seems to have some anti-inflammatory effects, both locally um, in the gut and then also outside of the gut. Um, it's really an amazing molecule that I, I don't think that we know everything about yet. Yes, it's, it's super cool. I love what you just shared about metabolic or gut flexibility. That's very fascinating. And, and I agree, you know, I know there, this is still kind of emerging research out there. So I love ketosis. I love keto, but I'm not one of those people who teach keto and say, you got to eat keto and be keto for the rest of your life. I think metabolic flexibility as a whole is very important because I think about our ancestors and I think about they always changed their diet according to their environment. There, there wasn't really, there was not one culture in the history of this world that stuck with the same diet long term. It wasn't until the last 50 years or so that we have this new problem. And even the people who are doing keto, I can guarantee it, most people, if you just write down what you eat every single day, it's usually the same eight foods, which decreases gut diversity and not good. We want to increase gut diversity. So I love rotating different keto foods, flexing in and out of ketosis, going a period of time doing carnivore. I wrote about this in my book, getting out of carnivore, maybe even doing plant-based. So I, I want to share that with you and hear your feedback. What, what, what do you think about the rotation of these foods and going in and out of ketosis for the gut and for health in general? I love it. I, lo I absolutely love it. It's it's what, what I would usually recommend unless somebody has a, a really good reason, metabolic reason, maybe they have, they have epilepsy, they're dealing with a certain type of cancer, that kind of thing to stay in strict ketosis. I, I often recommend exactly what you're saying, which is to kind of do the cyclical ketosis type regime. And, you know, there is some evidence that butyrate production from these butyrate producing bacteria in the body can be, or in the gut can be lower on an animal based diet that's more devoid of, of fiber. So something like a carnivore diet compared to a uh, plant based diets that are rich in fiber. However, as the authors of this paper that I just mentioned suggest, going back to the whole metabolic flexibility of the gut thing, just as the brain and parts of the body can use ketones for fuel in the absence of glucose, it's possible that the gut can actually use fuel sources other than butyrate. And this is kind of where your, your question about the ketones come in. When gut cells use butyrate as a fuel, it's actually converted to ketone bodies, beta-hydroxybutyrate and acetoacetate, in the process of being used as energy by these gut epithelial cells. And additionally, there are ketone transporters expressed by the gut epithelial cells, which suggests that ketones may also be used um, as a fuel source by the gut. And then you also have on top of that, the potential anti-inflammatory effects of beta-hydroxybutyrate at the level of the gut. So while we don't have a ton of evidence right now, uh, we do have some preliminary research and hypotheses to suggest that ketones may help improve gut function and also be used as an alternative fuel source for the gut. Uh, again, th this is not my work by any means. I'm merely describing what some people much smarter that than me wrote about in a recent paper uh, that again, I, I would highly recommend people uh, read if, if they're interested. Yeah, we'll put that in the, in the podcast notes. We have Rachel who will get that. And uh, if we can't find it, we'll ask you about it. But we should be able to find it. We'll put in the notes of the podcast. Now that's ketosis. That's keto, which I love. A big fan of keto flexing in and out. 
I typically teach keto first, getting fat adapted, and then I pair that with intermittent fasting strategies. So what have you seen and how do you use intermittent fasting with your uh, patients and clients? And have you seen that really benefit the gut specifically? Yeah, yeah. So I'll talk a little bit about the research first and then what I've seen as well in, in my clinical experience. I definitely think that, that fasting can absolutely help the gut in a couple of different ways. So uh, I'll caveat my answer again by saying that, that just like keto in the gut, fasting and the gut microbiota research are, are relatively new fields, uh, all things considered. So the combination of looking at the two together, fasting plus the gut and, and what it does to, to the gut is an even newer and more niche area of research. And I don't think that we have enough of it to be to, to give a super clear picture of, about what's going on, just because, it, and also because the, the study methods are so different, looking at all of these different, different research papers. But with that said, we have some animal evidence to suggest that longer term fasting may improve gut barrier function. And what's interesting is that improved gut barrier function um, in this particular study was associated with reduced relative bacterial abundance. So for certain people with dysbiosis, which again is the, the imbalance of bacteria or, or microbes in the gut or microbial overgrowth, fasting can be potentially a, a really powerful tool for helping with some of that. And, and I've seen that in some of our clients who maybe have some, some dysbiosis, some overgrowth of something like candida or certain gram-negative bacteria. Um, fasting can be a really powerful intervention. And we have at least one study looking at intermittent fasting during Ramadan that found that overall gut bacteria or my microbial diversity was increased, specifically some of those butyrate producing species, which is interesting. But the changes were not permanent when these people returned back to baseline when the intermittent fasting stopped. So in general, I think having some kind of intermittent fasting or time-restricted eating pattern in, in your day-to-day -day life is, is a, a good thing. There is also evidence in humans that fasting may have a somewhat of a personalized effect on a given individual's microbiome. And there was a very small study that looked at the effects of a seven-day water fast, and it found that it could reduce levels of fusobacterium, which is a gram-negative bacteria that may play a role in colorectal cancer. So again, that's another um, little bit more extreme with the week-long water fast, but, but still you know, a beneficial tool in the toolbox. And something I think that I, might actually be really interesting to you and your listeners is that, at least in, in mice, a lot of you know, these, these studies are in mice to, to get more of a mechanistic picture about what's going on. Every other day fasting can cause beijing of white adipose tissue, which basically increases energy expenditure. And this seems to be mediated by certain changes in gut bacteria. Meaning one, one day having your three meals a day, the next day having your intermittent fasting schedule or doing like an OMAD the following day? What, it, it would be every other day fasting. So one meal having your meals and then the next day just doing like a water fast. Although that said, this was in mice. Uh, one day for mice is probably multiple days for humans. So we do have to kind of be careful with extrapolation there. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, there is, yeah, there's a way you could calculate it. I, I, I just did it yesterday because I was looking at a study and it was saying, four weeks of a high fat diet contributed to inflammation in mice. And I was looking, all right, four weeks, I think that was like 14 years in humans. So there's a, <laughs> you got to look at that for sure. So continue. I just want to make that point. Yeah. Yeah. And, and if, if I can, and I'm sure you've talked about this on, on your podcast before, but I came from a background of studying these, these different diets in mice and 
one thing you have to realize when you're looking at the literature, you really have to look at what is the composition of, of that high fat diet in, in mice or in rats. Oftentimes it's high fat in combination with high carbohydrate. Um, and that is very hyperpalatable. The, the, the rodents overeat. Um, you also have to consider the fact that these diets are, they're, they're made of soybean oil and sucrose and maltodextrin and all of these, these horrible, horrible ingredients. It's not like the mice are eating their, their ancestral diet. So that's just a little tangent. Um, and I'm sure you know it, but I, it's, it's, it's one of my pet No, it's so important. Yeah, me too. We, I get all these, you know, people sending me articles and I look at it. I'm like, yeah, but look at what they fed. Yes, it was keto. Yes, it was high fat, but it was not healthy. So yeah, good job. I agree. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, going back to, to fasting in the gut, this may seem really obvious, but the other really powerful thing that fasting can do is just give your gut a rest from dealing with food all the time. And for some people with gut inflammation, strategic fasting can be a really helpful tool. And strategic fasting might be anything from time restricting to multiple day fasts, water fasts. And this can be a really helpful tool for healing because it provides the time and the space for the gut to heal, reduces some inflammation that may be involved with eating food or certain foods that may cause an immune response in the gut in certain people with intestinal permeability. So I think that's, that's another just simple thing that fasting can do. And then apart from you know, traditional longer term fasting, there's also probably a beneficial effect, like we talked about, simply just doing some time restricted eating on gut health, because as I mentioned, the, the gut microbes have their own circadian rhythm and, and circadian biology. Um, so generally, you know, eating when the sun is out, fasting during the period of darkness, maybe longer is going to be a positive thing. Well said, I, I agree. Uh, and it makes total sense because we talked about how much energy it takes to process a meal. When I interviewed Dr. Zach Bush last year, he, he shared a University of Virginia study that tracked how long it took for food to be digested. And when I say food, I mean it was a standard American diet meal, 800 calories of pizza. And it took about 14 hours to process that meal. And if somebody's eating a standard American diet and they're not fasting at least 14 hours, you think about the overwhelm that digestive system is taking. It's, it's just taking a big hit. It's not resting. It's not recovering. That's where fasting can help really reset the gut, especially when you, you start to extend that. But also it makes sense because it's kind of like survival of the fittest. Now that you're not eating food, there's no energy coming in. So you have all this gut bacteria and the strong, good bacteria are going to get stronger They're, and the bad ones are going to get eliminated. So it's survival of the fittest. And, and that's why it's important when you refeed, aka break the fast, you break it the right way. So what are some of the best ways to kind of break a, a shorter fast, let's say 18 hours versus a longer fast, three to five days? Yeah. So with an 18 hour fast, something like that, I don't, I don't necessarily think that you have to be super strategic in, in how you break something like that. Three to five days, I'll talk about in a second. But one thing I do want to mention is at MBT, I, I work with a lot of athletes, people who are doing a lot of a lot of physical activity, expending a lot of energy. They hear about something like intermittent fasting, keto. No, they get on that on that bandwagon, which is great uh, for some people. But if you combine something like a ketogenic diet, which inherently, sure as as you and your listeners, the people you've worked with have experienced, can inherently decrease appetite, and then you add to that fasting, which you know you're you're eating window is, is inherently compressed. 
And then they're doing a ton of caloric expenditure through their physical activity. On top of that, it becomes really, really important that during your eating window, you're getting in enough calories. And you know that there's there's different populations. So for somebody who's who's looking for maybe some some weight loss, some some body composition, some fat loss, it's going to be different from for them the strategy than for somebody who's an athlete who needs to be getting in those nutrients, those calories, so that they don't fall into this trap of low energy availability. So uh, I just wanted to say that that fasting and keto are, are hugely beneficial tools in the toolbox, but you also need to be careful about who's using them at, at what period of time. Fair point. Agreed. Yeah. Um, so with something like a longer multi-day fast, I think one of the worst things that you can do is come out of that eating a huge carbohydrate-rich meal. It's not going to be not going to be good for for your physiology or your gut. Your, your gut hasn't seen any food really in a couple of days, so you really have to very slowly add things in. I usually recommend people start with some bone broth or a bone broth based soup or something like that, and then from there start having you know some protein, some vegetables, not going crazy the first couple of times you eat after after that fast and then slowly working back up all the time, you know, eating nutrient dense foods, not going out and getting, you know, five pizzas to, to indulge on after your fast type of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. It's important because how you break that fast, that longer fast is, is almost as important as the fast itself. You could lose a lot of the benefits and you'll see a really high glucose spike if you just load it with carbohydrates at the end of that fast. Not a good idea. Yeah. Is there anything in particular that you you recommend people do following a longer fast? I like what you shared. I do have a, a sp- like a two-day protocol on how to break it. So it's more designed for like a five-day fast. I also recommend actually limiting the protein just so we could continue to get some of the autophagy during those two days. And to have, I love bone broth. I recommend that. Maybe some steamed veggies, fermented foods. I'm a big fan of breaking the fast to get some of that prebiotic uh, in there to really get some good, good diversity. But everything you shared is exactly how I would recommend it as well. Yeah. After the end of year work obligations and holiday family fun, it's easy to start the new year stressed, worn out, and lacking motivation which is definitely not the way you want to start the new year. So if you're feeling like you need a holiday from the holidays, I have the perfect solution. Do yourself a favor and start taking magnesium breakthrough every night before you go to bed. Why? Because stress depletes your magnesium levels and magnesium is critical for getting deep and restorative sleep. I take this product every night. The reason magnesium breakthrough is so effective is because it's the only organic, full-spectrum magnesium supplement that includes seven unique forms of magnesium, all in each pill. Yes, you heard me right. Most magnesium supplements fail because they are synthetic and only contain one or two forms of magnesium, which is simply not enough. When you get all seven critical forms of magnesium, that's when the magic happens. Pretty much every function in your body gets upgraded, from your sleep to your brain, from stress to pain, and inflammation. Even better, by making magnesium breakthrough part of your daily routine, you'll be fully rested, recharged, and ready to crush all of your New Year's resolution. Bioptimizers has hooked up the Keto Campers for an exclusive offer. If you go to magbreakthrough.com slash ketocamp, in addition to the 10% you get by using promo code ketocamp10, you will unlock a special gift with purchase for limited time only. So head over to magbreakthrough.com slash ketocamp. Use the code K-E-T-O-K-A-M-P-1-0 at checkout. Get the discount in this special gift. 
We'll drop a link for you down below in the podcast notes. I do want to talk about artificial sweeteners, and then we'll get into some anti-nutrients. But artificial sweeteners are, are everywhere, especially in the keto space nowadays. We have these keto protein bars and keto cookies and keto fat bombs and keto, 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 because everybody knows about keto now. So you could go on Amazon, you could go to Whole Foods, and you could get keto foods. But a lot of these keto foods, not only do they might have some bad oils in it, but also the next problem is these artificial sweeteners, sucralose, aspartame. So let's talk about artificial sweeteners and let's kind of rank them from the worst ones out there to some of the better ones that that can be okay. Yeah. So as far as a ranking is concerned, it's it's really hard to say because one of the most frustrating things when you look at the literature on this very controversial topic is the fact that artificial sweeteners are oftentimes lumped together as if they all did the same thing to our physiology, which is really, really unfortunate because they, they clearly don't. Um, so as far as a ranking, you know, I, I would probably put things like you know, monk fruit or stevia more at the top of that list and things like aspartame, um, sucralose, ACE-K, that kind of thing more at the bottom. There is some associational data in um, type 2 diabetes patients that suggests that those who consumed artificial sweeteners may have higher levels of insulin resistance. But we have to remember that just because there's an association there doesn't mean that there's a causal relationship. And you have to go back and, and if you look at the individual data points may, in many of these studies, you'll see that there's a lot of inter-individual variation to how people respond to these artificial sweeteners. And, you know, despite some studies showing the association between sweeteners, artificial oil sweeteners, and, and type 2 diabetes, when you look at confounding factors, it seems like oftentimes it's not necessarily the artificial sweeteners that predict diabetes risk, but rather other diet and lifestyle factors, which to me makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well said. So, okay, I agree with, about the monk fruit and stevia being some of the safer ones versus sucralose and aspartame. There's a lot of studies coming out. I've, I've seen one that tracked sucralose specifically and how it moved through the body and they could only find about i think 90 about 97 percent of it so about three percent of it was kind of untraceable meaning they don't, they're not sure if it was turning into an unusual metabolite or it was getting stored in the body but those are like really serious questions to ask and find out about so uh that's a big red flag so we got to be aware of that yeah mm -hmm, absolutely and i think we have to remember that the fact of the matter is we really don't know all that much about this topic. Long-term studies in humans looking at artificial sweetener intake that are very controlled don't really exist. But th there is some suggestion, um, and there, there's a good recent review paper on this that I can send you, that artificial sweeteners can potentially impact energy balance and by extension, weight gain in, in body composition and metabolic health through these different pathways. Some of those pathways include impacting the gut microbiota, reward pathways in our brain, also adipogenesis, which is the formation of new fat cells from stem cells. So for example, artificial sweeteners can interact with these sweet taste receptors that are located in our mouth and the gut, and thus could potentially impact satiety and overall calorie intake. And it's also possible, again, that these sweeteners could act locally at the adipose tissue and, and impact the, the, the fat cell growth or formation. And then there's also the potential impact on the gut microbiota. But as, as far as results goes, many of these are inconsistent or hypothetical at this point. And I think ultimately what you really have to do is consider how a given artificial sweetener affects you personally. So for example, 
you eat something or drink something that's artificially sweetened and you want more of something else that's hyper palatable and you keep eating and eating and eating? Or do you use something like, you know, one of those higher quality artificial sweeteners as a tool to help you satisfy a craving and then you're done and you don't end up consuming a lot of of extra calories and, and craving more? But I will say that given that, my, my personal bias is to just avoid them when possible because it usually leads people down, I think, a slippery slope of consuming healthier or lower carb or keto versions of the foods that got them into trouble in the first place. And I'd much prefer people to choose whole nutrient-dense foods over something sweetened with an artificial sweetener. But again, that's just my bias. So run the experiment yourself. And, and if you don't find any major effects on your physiology or psychology from occasionally using some of these sweeteners, then, then fine. Great share. Yeah, we don't want to switch one addiction for another, uh, although it's a healthier addiction, and you might argue, but it's still not. We don't want to be addicted to things. So if you find that it's leading to just wanting more fat bombs and more keto bars and more, 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 then for you, this could be an issue. It's much better to get maybe some dark chocolate. That could be keto-friendly. Maybe some berries. That could still be keto-friendly. So just some natural sources as opposed to the artificial. Yeah. And what, one other thing that I'll say is I do think that because the artificial sweeteners are so dang sweet, our taste buds probably become more accustomed to that overly sweet taste. And then we can't enjoy something like the sweetness of some fresh seasonal fruit like berries or even tomatoes or dark chocolate or the sweetness of you know a parsnip or a carrot. And maybe some people don't care about that, but I found that it's pretty amazing how some of these these real whole plant foods can taste, how sweet they can taste if your palate isn't used to this explosion of sweetness coming from artificial sweeteners. Yeah, I remember when I did, first did carnivore for 40 days and then I started to introduce some some berries. I was like, this is super sweet. Like it was a different taste versus before carnivore. Uh, speaking of carnivore, I, I love it as a tool, right? Just like I love keto and fasting as a tool. I don't think we should always be carnivore. But uh, I've seen it benefit so many people in my academy. I wrote a chapter about it in my book because we eliminate these anti-nutrients. So maybe you could talk a little bit about anti-nutrients, where they're commonly found, and how something like carnivore could help us heal our gut. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll I'll preface my answer by saying, uh, I too have seen carnivore be extraordinarily helpful for some people. Um, I've seen more of a, a plant-based diet be helpful as well that still includes some, some animal protein. I'm kind of uh, you know, I'm I'm on the I'm on the nutrient dense bandwagon. I love nutrient dense whole foods. Where you fall on the macronutrient spectrum, where you fa- uh, although uh, you do have to get enough protein, and where you fall on the you know higher animal foods versus higher amounts of plant foods uh, on your plate, I think is going to be individual. It's going to depend on what's going on in your life. It's going to depend on the state of your gut health. It's going to depend on you know a lot of things. And the diet that works for you today might not be the same one that's optimal for you you know five ten years from now. So I think it's it's important to keep tinkering. And I'm sure that's what you you teach your or five to ten months from now. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Yeah. So to your question about anti nutrients, there are compounds that are found in plants and include things like phytates, lectins oxalates, and they're, they're natural defense mechanisms for the plant against predation. So it makes sense that they exist from this evolutionary standpoint. But anti-nutrients can be problematic because um, of a couple reasons. They can inhibit nutrient absorption from uh, within a particular food. So for example, pumpkin seeds, a lot of people in the plant-based community say pumpkin seeds are a great source of zinc, but they also have phytic acid, which will bind to the zinc and make it less bioavailable. 
that's just one example, but plant foods that are quote unquote rich in things like, you know, zinc and copper and iron and calcium and some other nutrients may not actually be so rich in these things once we actually account for the anti-nutrients. And some anti-nutrients like lectins can also be problematic from the standpoint of increasing intestinal permeability. So, you know, I, I'm not a proponent uh, for everybody for, to avoid all plant foods because of anti-nutrients. I think you, again, uh, like the artificial sweeteners, like, like we talked about, you have to figure out what's going to work for you at this point in time and then experiment down the road as well. And if certain plant foods don't work for you, then, then fine. And, and I would avoid them for a period of time, maybe to facilitate some gut healing. But I also think that in most people, a sign of you know a robust system is being able to eat a wide variety of both plant and animals, uh, plants and animals, whole nutrient dense plants and animals. Not talking about you know a, t- a ton of gluten or something like that. And again, what you can tell right now might be different than um, down the road. And I think uh, you you can certainly reduce plant anti nutrients by soaking and sprouting and fermenting. But that said, animal foods will generally have the greatest nutrient bioavailability. So I would much prefer, for example, to get my zinc from oysters and shellfish than to try to get it all from pumpkin seeds. And the same for a nutrient like copper or iron. It's much easier to get the copper and iron in the bioavailable forms that you need from animals, uh, foods like liver than from plant foods. And then, of course, there are certain nutrients that you really can't get at all from plants like preformed vitamin A and, and B12. So I do think that for some people with certain health challenges, maybe intestinal permeability, maybe autoimmune conditions that we know are linked to gut health and, and permeability or, or leaky gut, it can be beneficial to avoid some of the biggest offenders when it comes to plants. Maybe that means something like avoiding legumes and grains on a paleo diet. For some people, maybe that means taking more of it in autoimmune paleo approach where you're also removing things like nuts and seeds and nightshades. Or for some people, like you mentioned, maybe that means a period of carnivore, which again, can can be helpful as well. Yeah, well said. Well, I agree with everything you just shared there. And and the goal is not to just eliminate these these vegetables, these plant toxins forever. The goal is if you have some some gut damage going on, you have some conditions like autoimmune for a short period of time, eliminate the ones that you have identified as an issue, work on the gut build the diversity or just build the strength of it, do some things to work on that gut, maybe get rid of some parasites or H. pylori, whatever it is, and then start to reintroduce them and see how your body responds to it. We want to be able to digest that. that. That's the goal, not to just run away from it. So that's where a carnivore could be a great tool short term as you work on the gut. That's what I've done with myself and what I teach uh, in the book. I do want to get to one topic here, the final topic, and, and that's something that's going to really ruffle the feathers of some people, but we got to talk about it, and that is the relationship between coffee, and not all coffee is created equal, we'll talk about that, but coffee and the gut. Let's talk about that. Yeah, so uh, this is another topic near and dear to my heart, because I enjoy coffee, and I, I finished a cup of it before our podcast, and I, I will get to the potential, potential, I want to emphasize potential downsides of coffee for the gut in a minute. But I also want to say that the polyphenols in coffee, coffee is a really great source of polyphenols, may have a positive effect uh, on the gut microbial ecosystem. So we know fiber and ketones can have a beneficial effect on, on the gut intestinal um, barrier function and then the, the microbes, but also polyphenols. So things in coffee and tea and berries and, and your, your colorful vegetables can also have um, you know, beneficial effects on, on the gut microbiome as well. But 
when it comes to the potentially detrimental effects of coffee on the gut, uh, it can be inflammatory for some people and cause some intestinal permeability, as can alcohol. It's, it's funny, I, <laughs> when I'm coaching people, oftentimes, you know, it, maybe it's a little bit of a struggle at first, but removing gluten, removing dairy, it's, it's not that big of a deal. Uh, removing grains altogether, not that big of a deal. But when it comes to coffee, people do not want to give up their coffee. And I, I, I can understand why. But for some people and for some guts, it, it can be problematic. And again, this, this may be a little bit controversial, but I found that bulletproof coffee in particular, or, or adding a lot of you know concentrated liquid saturated fats to coffee, can be for some people adding fuel to the fire for a couple of reasons. So one is that dumping a lot of concentrated liquid saturated fats into the gut may cause something called endotoxin translocation across the gut barrier and into the bloodstream where it can cause inflammation. So endotoxin or, or lipopolysaccharide is a toxin that is present in the outer membrane of the cell wall of gram-negative bacteria. And it can cause significant gut inflammation or systemic inflammation when it gets past the gut barrier and into the bloodstream. And, and one of the ways that that can happen is through dumping a lot of saturated, liquid concentrated saturated fats into the gut. And if coffee is already potentially by itself causing some level of intestinal permeability for someone, then the combination of also adding those liquid fats into that may not be the best, the, the best thing. There are some studies suggesting that the effects of coffee on gut permeability in particular are relatively acute. So if you don't drink coffee for 24 hours, the GI mucosa is capable of significant repair and regeneration. That said, most people drinking coffee are, are habitual everyday drinkers. That's not to say, again, that it will mess, that, that, that coffee consumption or bulletproof coffee consumption will mess up everyone's gut. But if someone is having significant symptoms when they drink coffee or just in general and they have coffee in, in their daily routine, I think that removing it for a period of time um, to facilitate some gut healing is a really positive thing. What are some of those symptoms to pay attention to? Yeah, so symptoms of you know intestinal permeability or, or dysbiosis could be something as broad as general inflammation. So that could show up as as joint pain, as you know brain fog and an inability to, to focus or concentrate it could show up as overt gut symptoms. So gas, bloating, constipation, diarrhea, abdominal pain, that kind of thing. Show up as skin issues. We know that there's a gut-skin axis. So there's a lot of, of, of places that that can show up, just general fatigue as well. Those would be symptoms that would, to me, suggest that, especially if you have one of those systemic issues coupled with like, like a pretty significant gut-related overt gut symptom, that's a sign to me that, you know, you probably need to do some work at the level of the gut, which could, for some people, include removing coffee for a period of time, or, or maybe not. You know, I, I think it's going to be personal there. Yeah. And you can also, if you're just so opposed to removing your coffee, I get it. But what you can do is eliminate the fat, number one, drink black coffee, and just make sure that black coffee you're drinking comes from a credible source that has been tested for heavy metals and mycotoxins and it's organic because coffee is one of the top sprayed crops in the world up there with corn and soy with uh, pesticides and herbicides, which is not good for the gut. So that Dunkin' Donuts, Starbucks, yeah, we're calling you out. That is causing some gut dysbiosis. So remove the facts if, if you feel like it's an issue. Just have clean black coffee and see if that if you see an improvement. Would you say that's a fair thing to start yeah, with? Yeah, absolutely. 100%. And th there is one other thing that I'll say on, on the coffee topic. And that is, there isn't any direct science on this that I know of. But I would guess that the state in which you're drinking the coffee 
and the reason behind drinking the coffee might also determine whether it's going to be a good or a bad thing for your gut. So for example, if you have this lovely morning ritual where you take 15 to 20 minutes in the morning and you sit outside and you drink your coffee and you enjoy it while you're setting your circadian tone for the day, I think that could be a really positive thing. If on the other hand, you're using caffeine in coffee as a crutch to get through a particularly stressful time and you find yourself you know, jittery and loopy from too much, maybe you even substitute coffee for really high quality nutrient-dense foods, that might get you into trouble. So the last thing I want to do is say that coffee is good or bad. And even if I did, I don't think that people, including myself, would really even listen to it and, and, and keep drinking it. Um, but I think we need to appreciate that coffee can have both a positive and a negative effect on both our psychology and our, 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 our sorry, our physiology and also our gut health. Yeah, great point right there. I'm sure somebody listening who's listening to us are like, oh no, not my bulletproof coffee. This might be why I feel like X, Y, Z. And then you're talking about, oh, if it's part of your morning ritual, they're like, oh, it's part of my morning. Now they're justifying why they it's so funny. People want to justify why they should. I'm guilty of it too. Like I'm, I'm long overdue for taking a coffee break, but I do it the right way. It's, it is part of my morning ritual. I wait an hour and a half after I wake up. I do French press. I go on my balcony. Uh, so there's a lot of enjoyment to that, to your point. And I'm not doing it in a stressful state. I'm not using it as a crutch. So uh, I I think it's an important thing to talk about. And I know that it it woke a lot of people up who might not realize it could be coffee with the butter, the MCT oil, or whatever it is that could actually be leading to some symptoms. So it was a great share, Megan. This has been amazing. Thank you for for sharing. I had a lot of fun with you. We totally uh, geeked out together. Where can the keto campers go check out more of your work? Yeah, so the best place would be to go to um, Nourish, Balance, Thrive. And if that's, I, I, I'm not on social media. I'm not, I don't do anything else really online, but uh, I'm at MBT and we have a podcast that, that you were recently on, like you said, and we, we work with, with people and yeah. So come, come check out MBT. Go check out MBT. I was on there with Chris. It was a great interview. We'll put links for your website and your podcast in the podcast notes. Uh, I want to thank you, Megan, for your research, your dedication, your energy, your personality. It's a, it was a fun conversation. I, I really believe that you you shared a lot of valuable information, but you shared it in a way that I believe didn't go over people's head. You brought the signs, but you gave it to them with practical tips to follow right after you shared the signs. So thank you for coming on the show. Um, I look forward to more collaborations and maybe I'll, I'll run into you at a, at a future conference. Of course. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. Thanks, Ben. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Megan Hall. Be sure to check out the links and the resources and the notes in the podcast notes down below. We put everything together for you, courtesy of Rachel. If you got any value from this conversation, text this to a friend, maybe somebody you know who's dealing with acid reflux, bloating, fatigue, autoimmune disease. Copy the link of this podcast and put it into a text message and text it to a friend or even multiple people. You could also post it on your social media. Let's get the word out. Let's help change more lives. If you haven't left the Keto Camp Podcast a rating or a review yet on Apple Podcasts, please do so as that helps the show grow. I also want to thank you for listening to the entire episode of the Keto Camp Podcast. I'll see you on the next one. This podcast.
podcast is for information purposes only. Statements and views expressed on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Benazadi, disclaim responsibility from any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not accept responsibility of statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or non-direct interest in products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.